Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. The scripture is found in 2 Corinthians 5. We'll be reading from verses 14, the second part of 14, all the way to the end of 21. And uh, we're mixing things up this morning. We're uh, reading out of the New Living Translation this morning. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, church. So we are into this uh, series called FAQ. We're dealing with this question today, what will make things right with the world? Now, if you're new here or you... um, just checked out last week, we actually dealt with a question before this, which is, what is wrong with the world? And maybe uh, that's actually the question that we ask the most. Um, and you maybe put in your favorite expletive in the middle of it, you know? And you might ask it, like, what, what's wrong with this world? What's, what's wrong with these people I work with? You know, what's wrong with my relationship? What's wrong with my marriage? What's wrong with, um, you know, what's going on in my school or in, in the newspapers that we read? What's, what's going on in here? We ask it, but I wonder if we ask it sort of rhetorically, like we don't really expect there's an answer. You know, it's a little bit like, like we don't really expect someone's gonna give us an answer and we're gonna walk away, like Tony said, with going, oh, it all makes sense to me now. We just kind of think, yeah, this is, I don't know, we have accepted, well, this is the world we live in. Uh, It seems like, I'm not one of those people that thinks um, the world is worse today than it was, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever. but I, I wonder if we're more pessimistic today than we think. Um, American, uh, I think it's in the Journal of American Psychology did a, a research study with, with Gen Z. Gen Z is the generation after the millennial generation. They say somewhere between, well, they did this study with, uh, with people who were 15 to 21. And depending on how you classify millennials or Gen Z, it's sort of borderline, but that's the age 15 and up. And they said that over half of them um, have, are struggling with mental health in some way, over half. And when they ask them what, what, what is the source of this struggle, this anxiety, this, 
uh, panic attacks and depression and, and just sort of pessimism and, and fear and paranoia, they, they list um, the things that they read about and are aware about in the world around them. They actually list things like um, you know, suicide bombs, and they list like political conflict and instability. They also list the breakdown of the family in their own lives and family conflict as a source of this. And over 90% of the adult segment of that, so the 18 to 21, so over 90%, so they reported uh, some kind of anxiety or depression in the last month. And I don't think it's actually just uh, isolated to that generation. They're probably just more honest than anyone else. That this is actually something uh, that we're all dealing with. And actually worldwide, there are twice as many suicides as homicides. Think about that. Someone said in, in response to that study, one of the researchers uh, who noted that, these were 2016 facts that are worldwide causes of death. And I don't think they were trying to be funny. They said the person you need to fear most is yourself. Like amidst all of the chaos, we think, why are people you know, killing each other Actually, twice as many of us are saying, I'm out. And I think that is indicative of a level of despair and, and an, a, an unbelief, really, that there is an answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? Or like, how will this get better? Um, maybe the most hopeful answer we could have uh, about how will this get better has to do with my golf game, which is pretty much non-existent. But I heard of this thing when I first started golfing that I know, I know now it's not real golf stuff, but it meant a lot to me, it's called a mulligan. It's like, you get up to the tee, and I was a baseball player, so it was like, and I watched Happy Gilmore, one of my most inspired movies, and I was like, I know what to do with this thing. Just wind up and crank it. And so I would, and the ball would sort of end up, and then one of my friends one day says, do you want a mulligan? I was like, what, what is that? What's this mulligan you speak of? They're like, well, you can just put the ball back on the tee. I'm like, I can? So I thought, this is like, I love this game suddenly. So. Of course, I put the ball back on the tee and I did everything the same. And then with the same result. And I said, and so I reached for another one. I said, no, no, no. Like, you get one. I was like, oh, okay. Per round. Like, what? This is a dumb game, guys. And actually, I found out, I found out you're, that's not even, like, real golfers don't even do that. Anyways, this is why I quit, right? And I told you guys before, it causes me to sin, so I don't golf. Um, but interestingly, like Dave noted last week, um, you know, Stephen Hawking, who passed away recently, one of the things, the conclusions that he had come to, one of the most brilliant sort of minds of, of our time, astrophysicists, and I read a couple other people who are um, sort of uh, after him who are still writing on this subject, um, you know, coming to the conclusion that the best hope we have for the future of humanity is if we can figure out how to live on Mars. And you've heard maybe the Elon Musk and the SpaceX project and all of that stuff saying, they're basically saying, look, we are not going to survive where we are. We need to figure out a way to find life on Mars and actually move there. The most brilliant minds in our world coming to that conclusion. That's a cosmic mulligan, right? Like, we just need to start the whole thing over on a new planet. And I'm not joking. These are the conclusions, and of course it brings up all these questions even as they're trying to figure out this interplanetary um, sort of ship that would be able to transport people. It's like, who gets to go? Who gets to stay? It turns into like your favorite you know, dystopian novel or, or movie, that, that stuff. These are the real things we're wrestling with. Now some of you maybe who are from a Buddhist background or a Hindu background or you're familiar with that or family or friends, um, the, the cycle of reincarnation in a sense is a cycle of do-overs. Um, and, and if you're not familiar with that, Buddhism sort of believes in, um, in these six realms of, of beings. And so there are gods, and there are demigods, and there are humans, there are animals, 
There are goats, and then there are what they call hell beings. And that is what we would find on, on the earth, that all of us are within one of those realms. And obviously, to move up into those realms is better. And the way that you do that is, as you have lived your life and you die, you are reincarnated. You are given another chance. But this life and the next life you get is dependent on what you did with the last one. So you may be still in the realm of humans, but if you did not use your humanity well, if you did not choose well, you're going to be um, in a lower place in life amongst humanity. That might mean sickness, that might mean poverty, that might mean um, you know, physical deformity, whatever that may be. That, and in some cases, you may actually drop down to like a lower realm. Like you may actually, until the goal is to continue to come back and to continue to work this out until you can ascend um, into the higher realms. And the goal ultimately is um, the, the, what the Hindus call nirvana, but like the Buddhists would call enlightenment, is to actually be able to escape because it is a cycle. It's a cycle. So the goal is this isn't good. We have to try to ascend and then get out. It is this a description of um, a do-over. Now, whether you're, you're, you're from a Buddhist background or you're familiar with that at all, you could probably relate to this idea because I don't know about you, have you ever been, you've been, we've all been in those situations where we say, I wish I could get that one back. Could I just have that sentence that flew out of my mouth back? Could, could I get that decision back? Could I get that relationship back? Could I not do that relationship? Again, could I get that summer, that season in my life back? We all have this thing in us that, even if we're pessimistic about it, we would love a second chance. We would love a do-over, a mulligan in this situation or that situation. And so I think that regardless of your faith background, wherever you came to this, there is that, I think it's built into the human experience to want to believe and know and feel and even have a chance to do it again. But the question of what kind of mulligan will actually work depends on what you think the problem is. If I go to the doctor and I have kidney failure, and then I say, you know what, I figured out what I'm gonna do, doc. I'm gonna, gonna redo my diet, and I'm gonna redo my exercise regimen, and it's gonna be new. I might get some more muscle. I might lose a little bit of weight. Is that gonna fix my problem? No, I need a new kidney. If that's not the do-over I need. And so the question of, you know, we all kind of have the sense of maybe can I have a mulligan, can I have a do-over? Yeah, it just depends what you think the problem is. Tony said, or uh, Dave said last week that the problem for us, and even the word that has appeared in some of our songs this morning, is sin. And we actually said it's a hopeful word because it's a word that treats our problem with reality and complexity. Right? If you have a real deep problem and you go to the doctor and they say all you need is a Band-Aid, that's not hopeful. That's delusional. When you go, no, I'm going to be honest about what's really wrong with you or what's really wrong with me. They said sin is, this, is not this very oversimplified people do bad things and stop doing bad things and we could get better. They said sin is this infection that has beset everything beautiful in and this is true about me, and this is true about our world, and this is true about everything. We are made beautiful, but we are broken. Our best attempts at life are beautiful and broken. There is an infection that is in all of us that is lethal, that is, work, that is working its way out in what the Bible calls death of every kind. Physical death is just the ultimate symptom 
of what the problem is. And so if that's what's going on, we need a different kind of duo. It's interesting to me actually reading some of these studies about what life on Mars would be and if we could only escape to it. It is the best that science can come up with. And yet the fact that an asteroid might hit our planet in a thousand years is not humanity's biggest problem. And Dave pointed out, the irony is if we all move to Mars, the common denominator between this planet that we screwed up and that one is the next is us. Who went? Someone said, well, you know, the problem with, with the dinosaurs was they didn't have a space program, but we do. <laughs> but that's not going to help us and not going to stop us from killing each other and killing ourselves. That cannot be the answer to how this is going to get better. Something has to deal with the true condition of what's going on. And if it is the cycle of reincarnation, the question is, how do you know when you've done enough to be able to ascend to the next life? And karma actually presents a problem in the cycle of reincarnation. Because if I come across you, and you are paying for your past life with your sickness and your pain, should I help you or not? Because you're supposed to be paying for what you did. So now for me, to, be, to do good would be to help you. But am I messing with karma when I do that? This is a legitimate problem. We need something that addresses the deep problem of sin in a way that says, yes, this will actually make things better. And it's interesting, if you look at the scriptures, God indeed did give us a do-over, a restart. And the Apostle Paul, writing to a, a church, maybe a, a young church like ours, a new church, trying to explain to them, you have to actually understand, what's, what are the letters in the New Testament about? You know, the New Testament is made up of the four biographies of Jesus, then the one biography of the church, which is Acts, like the first century of the church. And then all the letters after is trying to explain to all these churches, what does it mean now that Jesus has come and lived and died and been raised to life? What does it mean for your life? What does it mean for your marriage? What does it mean for your job? What does it mean for your friendship? What does it mean for your sex life? What does it mean for how you do life? And in one of these letters, one of the earliest letters written to the church, the Apostle Paul writes this. Since we believe that Christ has died for all, we also believe that we have died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one point, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. What does he mean? He means there's more to life than what you're seeing with your eyes. There's more to life than the flesh of the body. How differently we know him now. Then he comes to this verse. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ, or some of your translation might say, anyone who's in Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. In marketing, we used to say when you took a product that was basically the same and you were going to launch it new but not much has changed, but you did some stuff to the packaging to make it look, we call the lipstick on a pig. Right? Like, it's the same thing. You're just trying to dress it up. That is not what Paul is saying God has done for us. It's not a few minor tweaks. So you, know, you, know, you just need some rough edges. You had an old life. You needed a new one. Your old life is gone. Your new life has begun. He says, anyone in Christ gets a new life. And he says, it has begun now. The new life has begun. And he's explaining, he says, something about what happened with Jesus and his death and his new life means that for you, there is also the hope and possibility 
of death to your old life and being alive in a new one. Now, you may be like, that sounds great. What, how does that even work? Interestingly, Jesus, we have a record of one of Jesus' conversations with someone who was a religious person who had studied, you know, the whole Old Testament scriptures and was kind of thinking, yeah, God's going to send someone. He starts to believe that Jesus is someone special. And he goes to have this conversation with him, and Jesus actually springs this whole thing of new life on him. He says this, Jesus replied to this guy who was questioning him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God in this, this new life unless they are born again. And this, you know, very learned religious man says, question we would all ask, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. What are you talking about? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, again, he says, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And then he says this, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And in that line is the key to us understanding what is this new life? that we have in Christ. What is the thing that God has done that is actually going to make this better? Jesus says you had a birth. It was a physical one. Every human being does. But with that birth came with, along with it the hope and the promise and the expectation of what your life was supposed to be. And if you actually go back to the beginning of Scripture when we were created, the Scriptures say that we were created to be in relationship with God such that we trusted God. And because of that, everything took its rightful place. We believed his identity statement about us, that his love for us and that we had been made in his image was more important than how we looked or what other people thought about us or what we did for a living. So we trusted him and we had an identity in him and we valued people and relationships over things. But that old life, Jesus says, you know, you had that physical birth. But then that bent inside you is the same. Everyone, everyone in the world who's had that physical birth is to not trust God, to actually try to find our identity and how we look and what we do and how much money we make and what other people think about us. And instead of loving people and using things, we use people to get things. He says, that's the sum of your physical birth. That is the flesh giving birth to flesh. Why are you a sinner? Because your parents are sinners and their parents are sinners. We are all in this infection of sin, Jesus says, that, is, that is, if you had that birth, you need a new one. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And he doesn't mean this kind of like disconnected, in the, in the scriptures when they talk about physical and spiritual, they don't mean non-material. He means it's the stuff that's inside you that is actually what's wrong, that is dying, even though your body looks beautiful. You need a new spirit, you need a new life, you need a new heart that feels things and thinks things and desires to do things. Jesus said, and, and Paul says, in Christ, you get that new life. What, what does this actually mean? How does this actually work? God's plan to start again with you and me. Because oftentimes, if you're saying, well, what's wrong with the world? Maybe, maybe many of you are like, God, what is wrong with the world? Like for people of faith, we actually have a bigger problem with that question. Because we don't just ask it to ourselves. We look up to the heavens and say, God, why aren't you doing anything? Maybe many of you got off the faith train because of that unanswered question. Or somebody gave you a very simplified answer of what God would be doing. You say, I don't know how that works. 
This is the answer to the question of what is God doing to mend this broken world? He sent his son into our space. This is the first sign of hope, right? That Jesus came into our space. There is no stairway to heaven. There is no ladder you need to climb to get better, to get better, to do better, to be better. Heaven came down to us. Christ came into our space. This was the beginning of God making us new, saying, I'm not going to expect you in your old life to get up to me. I will come down to you. Jesus comes into our space as a human being, into the broken world, and with us says, that cries and weeps and feels the pain of living in a, broken, in a beautiful world that's broken. began to show us what happens when you actually trust God. What does a human life look like that's lived how it was meant to be? What does a human life look like when they trust God ultimately for whatever's going to happen in their lives? What does a human life look like when they draw their identity from God's love for them and not what other people say about them or what other people want them to do or not do or their marital status or whatever, all of which Jesus just sort of bought all of those things because he had an identity in God. And what does a human life look like when you value people over things and you use things to love and bless people? That's why God's plan began with the new life in Christ that we first see, ah, this is what we were meant to be. This is a human being fully alive. So God sends Jesus into our space. But he isn't just in our space as this shining example of someone we will never be. And many people think that that's what Jesus is. He was amazing. He changed history. He was a shining example of a beautiful life. But if that's all, that's bad news. Because we can't get there. He didn't just come in our space. The scriptures say he came in our place. Right? Jesus says, the flesh gives birth to flesh. Your first parent, the first human, Adam, is a pattern that you have all followed. And if you were the first human, you would follow that pattern. He says we need a new humanity, a new person. And Jesus comes in our place as the new human. And that's why Paul says if anyone belongs to Christ, or some of your translations say, if anyone is in Christ, you get what he gets. Paul says, you know, when Christ died physically, that is actually a vicarious death that you say, I don't have to die on the cross, but I'm dying in my old life. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it's a, it's, it's a vicarious new life that you have in him that now you are alive in him, in your inner person. You become a new person. When any of us come to that point, we say, I am done. I am done being, like having my hope in me, having my hope in what I have accomplished in life, having my hope in what I look like, having my hope in what other people think about me, having my hope in my better behavior or my cleaned up life or I'm better than I used to be. When I am done saying, I'm, my hope is not in that, Christ, my hope is in you. Amen. We come alive. Mm -hmm. and, and many of you can testify to this, though it's your own personal experience, of how you think things now you never used to think. You see broken patterns of thinking about yourself and other people healed. You feel things you never used to feel anymore. Things you used to want, you don't have a taste for. Things you never thought you desire, you can't get enough of. 
the way you see people, the way you see the world has totally changed. It wasn't a book that you read that you said, oh, it was new life inside you. In our space, in our place, the scriptures say this is, and I'm Brian to tell you guys, this is grace. <laughs> this is what the scriptures call grace. Undeserved mercy and faith. It's a gift that you are given this new life. And I'm telling you, grace is way more beautiful than religion. Religion is the stairway to heaven. And whatever the names on the stairs are, whatever the holy place is, whatever the holy book is, it's basically do better, be better, and God will love you. And in Christ, he says, no, I came actually as the end of religion. There is no stairway. I have come into your place, and I have stood in your place. And this is grace. Amen. Undeserved mercy, favor. You don't get what you deserve, and what you don't deserve, you get. This is grace, and it is way more beautiful than religion. Grace liberates us from the crushing weight of religion. And you know what religion does? It either crushes us under its weight because we're never good enough, or we crush everybody else because we're better than everybody else. Why can't you do this? Why can't you do this? Why haven't you been able to do this? Religion either crushes us or corrupts us. Grace frees us because we look at other people and we go, oh God, have mercy on them just like you have mercy on me. And you know if I can say this, grace is more beautiful than karma. You know what they say about karma? It's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> It's a cycle, and actually the goal is to escape it because it's a cycle. And how do you know if you've ever lived enough? How do you know if you've ever ascended enough? How do you know if you should help that person because they're paying for their sins? Grace is the most beautiful work. The scriptures say, this is grace, that you have a new life in Christ. And it is all from God. It is a gift. John Orberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, tells this story. He says, one of the great works of art in the Western world is Michelangelo's Pieta. It's a marble statue of an anguished Mary holding the crucified Christ. Some years ago, a fanatic nationalist rushed upon the masterpiece and began smashing it with a sledgehammer. Although the damage was significant, Vatican artists were able to restore the statue to near-perfect condition. And here's what he says. You were created to be a masterpiece. Paul writes, for we are God's workmanship, or you could translate, work of art. It is the goodness of God, God's work, in creating us. Listen to this, that makes our fallenness so tragic. This is why our disappointment with ourselves runs so deep. But God is determined to overcome the defacing of his image in us. His plan is not simply to repair most of our brokenness. He wants to make us new creatures. So the story of the human race is not just one of universal disappointment, but one of inextinguishable hope. Hope that in Christ, Paul says, you, the new life has begun. In other words, even now, you have no idea. Even now, you are being remade. You are being made new. His work is happening in your life. And you might say, okay, well, how does this fix 
what's wrong with the world? Is this this is private little experience of me and God, and I get this new life, and it's so beautiful, but to hell with the rest of the world. Jesus didn't just come into our space and into our place, but the scriptures actually tell us that he came to start a whole new human race. A people, a community, that would go out and represent grace to the world. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5. All of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us, listen to this, this is your, the new human race. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. In other words, bringing them back to God. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal to the world through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. This is how the world gets healed. It is when God gathers his community of grace together and says, you are now ambassadors of grace. Someone once said, I said this a couple weeks ago, that the church is, a, is an embassy in a foreign land. And Tony pointed out this week when we were talking about this, that actually an embassy in a foreign land is actually considered the soil of whatever country that that represents, right? So a Canadian embassy in Indonesia, if you go to the Canadian embassy, you are on Canadian soil. Think about this. I have to get up. Think about this. <laughs> Think about your school, your workplace, your family, your neighborhood. That is your foreign soil in this world that says you've got to pay for what you've done. And justice is the only final one. No, we are people, actually, who when they come into our space, they're on the soil of grace. You get that? Yeah. Oh, we should pay. That'll preach. <laughs> when they come into your space, they're on the soil of grace. Because wherever grace goes, right, that is the foreign land. You represent Christ as an ambassador of grace. Man, how guilty I am, how guilty the church is of not representing this. He says, this is what you're doing. You're trying to help the world understand God is not counting your sins against you. Come home. Be made new. That is how the world gets changed, is when the community of grace understands this has nothing to do with my ethnicity. This has nothing to do with my religious background. This has nothing to do with my social standing. This has nothing to do with what other people say and think about me. But as I am a person who has received grace, I am full of grace, I am in Christ new, then everywhere I go, everyone who comes in contact with me experiences grace. So what kind of friend are you? What kind of spouse are you? What kind of student are you? What kind of athlete, coach, teacher, boss, employee are you? Are we people representing grace wherever we go? Because we are in Christ and we have received this gift. And it is the new life inside of us that is changing us. 
And so I just have two questions for you before we go to celebrate communion, the grace of God to us. One is, are you in? As in, are you in Christ? Some of you, it's time. You're never going to get to the bottom of that book list. You're never going to get to the bottom of your questions. I did a wedding yesterday with a couple that goes to our church. You get married not because you know everything about the person. You know how it's all going to go. And it's risk-free. You get married when you come to the point you realize, I know enough to know I want to spend the rest of my life finding out the rest. And that this commitment to your love and my love to you will make us into the people you want to be. Some of you are at that point with Jesus. You're never going to study enough to figure it all out. But you know it's time. I need to be in. And you say, how do I do that? Well, you can just tell them right now. I mean, out loud if you really want to, but you can just do that in your heart. Say, Jesus, that's it. I'm done. I am done putting my hope in me, in what I look like, in what I've accomplished, in what other people think about me, in my education, in my family pedigree, in my last name. I want to be in you, with and you can do that. Later on, we have prayer uh, every, at the end of every service. And if you want to pray that with someone or you prayed it and you want someone to tell you, what did I just do? That may be your day. And those of you that say, no, I am in Christ. The question is, is it in you? This grace. This gift that you have received. That you have experienced. Getting what you did not deserve and not getting what you did deserve. That is what is meant to flow out of us. Think about that place where you are, that little embassy that you bring as an ambassador, where everyone who walks into your zone is experiencing grace. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment. Tommy's going to come and break the bread. And you guys can come down and, and just you know, take a tangible expression, like actually feel it in your hands and taste it in your mouth. You know, part of why we do this physically instead of just trying to mentally remember that Jesus has offered us grace in his life is because as real as that bread is, as real as that grape juice, not wine, as real as that is to you, it is a reminder this is how real he is in my life. And I want you, when you take it this morning, if you're going to take it, that this is grace. It's in me. It is in me through this new life that I have. You might say, well, but what about my body? Well, that's coming. Two weeks. Maybe next week. I can't remember. <laughs> Because it's not just something that happens to our soul. One day it will happen to our bodies as well. But it's already begun today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for coming into our space. For being willing to enter the world you created. To take on flesh and be one of us and with us and for us to walk and to work in our shoes. You are not a distant God, far off telling us what to do, never having lived it yourself. But also you have stood in our place, and that, that's what these <coughs> symbols represent, and we are forever grateful that it does not rest on us, that this is the gift of grace. And Lord, we want to be a people and a community, individuals, families, friends, groups of friends, marriages that are 
and ambassadors of grace to a world so desperate for kindness, forgiveness, a second chance. So even as we taste these things today, let it remind us of how real your grace is to us and in us and through us.